Father, this is your word, and these are recorded events of what your son did, what he said, what others thought of him. And we gain so much insight, and in many ways we see that people have not changed all that much. Jesus had many friends, and he had also many enemies. What a controversial person he was and is. We thank you, Lord, that Jesus breaks the mold of religious leaders. So radical. Radical in his love and in his compassion. And what an example Jesus Christ himself is to us. And I pray, Lord, that we who have gathered tonight would not judge Christianity by Christians as much as by Jesus Christ and his claims and his impeccable lifestyle. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. When Jesus ascended into heaven, the disciples had never seen anything like that. The idea of a human being floating upward into the sky I'm sure their mouth was open and they just went, wow. They stared. They just looked. They were fixed on that sight. And an angel had to tell them to sort of get busy. He said, you men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? For this same Jesus shall return in like manner as you have seen him go. The disciples saw him leave. The angel said he would come again. We are now reading a section close to the death of Jesus Christ. It's his last visit to Jerusalem. Soon the Passover will be celebrated. Soon he will go to the cross. Like a coach who would assemble his team or a commanding officer who would assemble the troops before the battle, prepare them for what is ahead, Jesus is with his disciples as well as in the temple daily teaching the crowds. And he's preparing the disciples for what is coming. Though Jesus is about to leave, he speaks about his coming again to the earth. He predicts what will happen to Jerusalem, that it will fall. He predicts signs that would come at the end of the age that would signify his coming again. And so in verse 29, he spoke to them a parable. Look at the fig trees and all the trees. When they are already budding, you see and you know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you likewise, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things are fulfilled. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Now that scripture has been variously interpreted. There are those who say what Jesus is speaking about is um, what happened in 1948. They think uh, the fig tree represents Israel. Israel has become a nation May 14th, 1948. And uh, a generation is 40 years that's why in 1988, there was such fervor, 88 reasons why Jesus is coming. Some thought he would come in the spring, others thought he would come in the fall, and they had books documented as to why he would come in that year. The biblical generation was up. Israel had become a nation. 
That's one interpretation of it. Uh, the other interpretation is the fig tree represents Israel and the coming of age spiritually. Just like fruit blossoms on a fig tree, Israel will bear spiritual fruit and have a spiritual revival. A couple of things with that that I have a problem with. Number one, if that is the interpretation, that has not happened yet. Number two, it would mean that not only Israel would revive, but all of the other nations would revive as well. For it says in verse 29, look at the fig tree and all the trees. I believe the best interpretation, the first rule of Bible interpretation is always interpret the text in the light of its context. And there was a question the disciples asked back in verse 7. Let's just remind ourselves of it. They asked him, saying, Teacher, but when will these things be? And what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? Jesus tells them all sorts of signs. And then, look at the fig tree and all the trees. Springtime. When they are already budding, you see, you know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you likewise, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Just like a fig tree bears fruit, and you know that summer is near, when these things bear fruit, when they come to pass, like the fig tree, these are the signs, these are the fruits. You'll know that my coming is near. When these signs that I have previously spoken about come to pass... Then he says in verse 32, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things are fulfilled. Now again, that text has been scrutinized and given several interpretations. Interpretation number one comes from those who doubt the literal return of Jesus Christ. Oh yes, there are those who do not believe Jesus will literally come again. That he spoke figuratively all the time and so... Uh, it's a figurative coming. It's hard to follow their interpretation. But will they, they will say, uh, is verse 32, refers to Pentecost and 70 A.D., the coming of the Holy Spirit with power upon the church. But in 70 A.D., Jerusalem was destroyed. It was burned with fire. And they see there is some of that predicted in here. But they see that all of this chapter is fulfilled in the destruction of the temple by the Romans and the subsequent captivity in 70 A.D. The only problem with that is pretty obvious. There are lots of signs Jesus predicted in this chapter that never occurred during that time. Wars and rumors of wars that are widespread, earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilence in a very concentrated and magnified sort of a way. Many of those signs were never fulfilled. So anyway, that's one interpretation I would throw it out. The other interpretation that seems more plausible is the interpretation that is based on the language of the text. In verse 32, the word generation is the word ganea, ganea. It's he ganea aute, the generation of this or of that time. And because it is ha ganea, which we get the term race from, the interpretation says, well, what Jesus is referring to is the Jewish race. 
The Jewish nation will not go into oblivion until all these things are fulfilled. The reason I don't buy that interpretation in particular is because that was obvious to the disciples. Being Jews, knowing all of the predictions of Jeremiah that God would not let Israel pass away, he said, until the heavens are completely destroyed, uh, he said, I'm going to fulfill my covenant with Israel. They all believed that up to this point. It was not new news to them. It seems more plausible is that the generation that sees the unfolding and the fulfillment of all of those signs, and I wouldn't limit it to 40 years, that generation is mentioned in verse 32 and spoken about, will by no means pass away till all things are fulfilled. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. I don't know what view you hold of the scripture individually. But this is the view that Jesus held of it. If some of you say, well, I I like the Bible. It's a nice book. I would say that it's as inspired as Shakespeare. And I've taken the classes, the Bible as literature, and I admire my professor who has tried to pick apart the inspiration of the scripture, and we see it as a very nice book. But it's filled with myths, and there are some problems that I have with it, inconsistencies, incongruities. Therefore, I would not say that it is inerrant. I would not say it is impeccable. If that is your view of Scripture, then you are at odds with Jesus Christ. Heaven and earth will pass away. But Jesus said, my words will by no means pass away. You say, well, that's just referring to his own speech. Well, look back in the Gospel of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. He spoke about the Old Testament law, and he said the same thing. He said, not one jot or one tittle, that is tantamount to saying, no dot of the I or crossing of the T will pass from the law till all is fulfilled. And he said, heaven and earth will pass away first. So Jesus didn't think the Bible was just some handy book to place on your table at home so that people can press flowers in it, but that it was something to live by that it would endure. Now let's get personal. But take heed to yourselves. And really, this is where prophecy is at. We can sit and debate interpretations all day long, but the real power behind it is when you personalize it and it motivates you to watch and to wait and to live a holy life, anticipating the return of Jesus. Take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, cares of this life, and that that day come upon you unexpectedly, for it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the earth. Watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. The things he's speaking about, again in context, would be the things of judgment. The things that will cause the earth to be snared when God judges it in tribulation. Now, I have been called an escapist because I teach strongly a pre-tribulation rapture. You betcha. You know why I am? Because Jesus said, pray that you may escape. I'm no fool. (laughs) If he said, pray that you might escape it, I'm going to pray that I escape it. You might think that you're smarter than Jesus. You don't need to pray that. Jesus told me to pray it. 
that I would escape these things that come upon the earth and stand before the Son of Man. And that's who I'm looking for. I'm not looking for the Antichrist. If I was anything but that position, I'd be looking for him. I'm looking for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And by the way, I think he could show up at any moment. And if he comes before this Bible study ends, I'm not going to be disappointed. I'll let him interrupt the study. And we'll be home. And in the daytime he was teaching in the temple. But at night he went out and stayed on the mountain called Olivet. Then early in the morning all the people came near in the temple to hear him. When you come with us to Israel this next spring, you'll get the topography. Because we'll come into Jerusalem and first we'll park on Mount Scopus and then we'll drive over to the Mount of Olives and you'll be able to see Jerusalem unfolded as a gem before you. You'll look down and you'll see the Kidron Valley as the Mount of Olives descends. You'll see off to the right the Garden of Gethsemane and then the slope rises again to the Temple Mount where the temple once stood. You'll be standing on the east looking west. Why did Jesus stay on the Mount of Olives? Well, Jerusalem was packed full of people. There were no hotels that were available. The city had swollen beyond its normal capacity. Thus, people would come and not stay. If they could, couldn't stay with friends in the city, by the way, they'd open up their homes to do so, but if they couldn't do that, they would then spend the night out in the countryside surrounding Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives. Once you see it, you'll understand why Jesus hung out there. It's a great spot, and still today it's been kept filled with olive trees. And the Garden of Gethsemane is right down at the foot of the Mount of Olives and uh, looking up toward the Temple Mount. So that's where Jesus stayed, out on the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning all the people came to him and came to the temple to hear him. Now chapter 22. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called Passover. Six months prior to this date, Jesus was with his disciples at a place called Caesarea Philippi. We'll take you there. In fact, one of the greatest examples of a fig tree is there in Caesarea Philippi. And if you come, you'll be able to see those figs sprouting out probably by that time just about completely sprouted. And in Caesarea Philippi, he was up on a high mountain transfigured before the disciples, and the scripture says he set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem. So for six months, he has been planning this Passover, this event. He was on the way to Jerusalem as the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. Lambs filled the streets of Jerusalem as each household was required to bring a lamb to be sacrificed. The blood was shed, the lamb was roasted, and now the Lamb of God has come on this final Passover to have his blood shed for the remission of sins. Passover was a big deal, as most of you are aware of. If you were a Jewish male, you were 12 years or older. By the way, you were considered an adult member of the community at 12. Now it's 13. 12 and above, if you lived Within a 15-mile parameter of the city, you were required by law to attend the Passover feast. You had to come to Jerusalem three times a year. But to so many Jews, it wasn't a requirement or a duty. It was a privilege. 
to go to Jerusalem. It's still the heart cry of a Jew to celebrate Passover at least once in their lifetime in the city of Jerusalem. There's nothing like it. I've been able to be there one time in my life for Passover. It was exciting to be there. You can't get a hotel room. People say, well, why don't you go to Israel during Passover? Good luck. I lived on a kibbutz at the time. That's why I could do it. But the hotels are packed usually a year or two in advance by the Jewish community around the world wanting to get in. And in the Passover meal, they will say, next year in Jerusalem. It's always their cry that perhaps next year I'll get to celebrate that holy feast within the holy city of Jerusalem. Elaborate preparations went on for the Passover. Uh, they decked the city out. You know, we have the balloon fiesta this week and this last week. And uh, the city makes preparations for it. Well, the Jews made elaborate preparations. Streets were repaved. Tombs were whitewashed, bright white, so that you would not touch them. Otherwise, you become ceremonially unclean and you couldn't celebrate the feast. Bridges were repaired. In the synagogue, the two weeks before Passover, the rabbi would recount and teach in depth the story of the Passover to the children and to the adults to get that fresh in their minds so that they would be spiritually prepared. Two days before the Passover, the search for leaven occurred. It's a interesting celebration. You get a candle and you look and scour through the entire house to find any leaven, any crumb of bread that would be left behind. You search for it and you toss it out, take it out of the camp uh, that you can celebrate this feast of unleavened bread. Now let me clarify something. There's a double feast going on. It talks about the feast of unleavened bread, which is the Passover. Actually, in the book of Exodus, there's two separate festivals, Passover and unleavened bread. 14th of Nisan is Passover, or Nisan, but I always say Nisan because though the pronunciation is technically Nisan, you might think of a truck, so I like to say Nisan. The 14th day was Passover. The very next day on the 15th began a seven-day feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Because the feasts were so close together, they just called it all one feast, Passover week. It was commemorating the leaving of Egypt. And remember how they left Egypt? How did they do it? In a hurry, right? God said, stand and eat your food. Put your sandals on. Put a staff in your hand. Have your clothes ready. For tonight, the angel of the Lord will pass through the camp of the Egyptians. Put the blood on the doorposts and the lintels of your house. And everyone who doesn't have that, the death angel will come and destroy the firstborn. That was the Passover. The bread that baked was unleavened bread. Why? Because they didn't have enough time to let the bread rise. Yeast. So if you ever go to Jerusalem at Passover, if you just ever go to Jerusalem, you're going to find it anyway, but especially during Passover, matzah bread. Crackers. It's square crackers. And uh, when I was in Israel and I worked there during Passover, that's all you eat as far as bread is concerned. And at first you think, man, I'm tired of this unleavened bread. But you know, after a while you just get a taste for it and you start craving it. And so we had it at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And, you know, after Passover season, you've gotten so used to it. Where's that matzah bread? I miss it already. But uh, they were required at this time to eat it. Now let me tell you about the political atmosphere 
the atmosphere politically was inflammable. And that is, the Romans thought the Jews would riot at any moment. And they might. They had been known to do that, if you know their history. Especially, they were prone to riot whenever there was a national festival, for obvious reasons. They believed that God was their true leader, and they hated Rome being in charge. And you get enough of these people together, you might have a large army of Rome, but if you get enough of these people who are rebels, they could start a quell, an insurrection. So, let's make my Bible the Temple Mount, shall we? It's rectangular, about like this. On the Temple Mount itself, if you put the temple somewhere in the middle, off to one side of the temple, attached to the Temple Mount, was a large fortress called Antonia. And the Antonia fortress was built to house troops as well as the procurator. Punch's Pilate would hang out there during the festivals. That was his headquarters. Usually he was over in Caesarea by the sea, but during Passover he was in the Antonia fortress overlooking the Temple Mount. He would bring in many more soldiers during this time just in case those Henri Jews would want to start something. He would have his soldiers ready for action. And if you go with us to Israel, now I'm excited speaking about the tour, we'll show you the remains of the Antonia Fortress. Still there, still intact. In fact, it has been unearthed if you go down far enough, and we will. You'll see the original pavement where every criminal would stand to be judged by the procurator, given a sentence before he would be taken out to die. And so you'll stand very few places where you can say it's authentic, but that's authentic. You'll be able to stand on the stones where Jesus stood before Pilate to be sentenced to death. In fact, they have uncovered an inscription in the stone where the soldiers would play a cruel game called the King's Game. And we'll explain how that game works. It's still inscribed there on the stone in the Antonia Fortress in Jerusalem. All right. Here we are in Jerusalem. It's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, the city is abuzz with activity. And the chief priests, verse 2, and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. And then he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. Satan entered Judas. There's a lot of motivations, a lot of reasons perhaps in the natural realm why Judas betrayed Jesus. But here we are given insight into the spiritual realm. The devil was behind the plot. He was backstage cueing his puppet, Judas Iscariot. Satan entered him. Is it possible for a Christian to be demon-possessed? I would answer that without hesitation, absolutely no. It is not possible for a Christian to be demon-possessed. But it is possible for church-going people 
to be demon-possessed. Just because you go to church doesn't make you a Christian. You know that, I think. In the synagogue in Capernaum, there on Saturday, worshiping with the rest, was a demon-possessed man. I am frightened for those who come to church and hear the gospel week after week, time after time, and yet harden their hearts. They don't let Jesus come in. The house is vacant, so to speak. And when the house is vacant, Satan and his minions look for that empty house that they might fill. I think it's very possible. Even to form distractions for God's people. For people who are not Christians but still go to church to be demon-possessed. In short, unbelievers can be demon-possessed. Christians cannot. I don't think Satan was a believer, but I'll tell you what, he hoodwinked everybody. You know, nobody suspected Judas. That's the amazing thing. You might picture Judas, the guy kind of with the black robe and the little mask on, and, you know, he kind of has that face. I think the disciples were absolutely shocked when they found out it was Judas. In fact, when Jesus spoke that somebody's going to betray him, they start inquiring, well, is it me? Is it him? Who is it? You know, they didn't say, ah, oh, it's Judas. I knew it all along. He was such a good hypocrite. He had perfected the art of hypocrisy. In fact, he seemed the most spiritual. I think if you were to line them all up and listen to Peter talk and listen to uh, the zealot talk, Simon, and listen to Judas, you'd say, you know, Judas, now he could be, he could be in the ministry easy. I mean, this guy's ooh, he's mature. After all, in Bethany, when he saw that woman break that alabaster flask of precious ointment. After all, it was worth a whole year's wage. And he, she just busted it open and wasted it extravagantly on Jesus. And Judas sounded so spiritually, said, oh, you wasted this money. It could have been given to the poor. You might say, well, yeah. I'm sure the disciples may even say, well, yeah, I know. I wish I would have thought of that. But it says Judas said this not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a big ripoff. That's a paraphrased translation. He was a thief. He was the treasurer of the board of directors of Jesus' ministry. He kept the till. He kept the bag. And he was dipping into it, the scripture says. And so he didn't like that something that he could have had and sold for himself, though he said given to the poor, was, he thought, wasted upon Jesus. And of course, Jesus rebuked Judas. Let her alone, he said. She has done this for my burial in honor of me. Now, what I think happened is that at Bethany, where this took place, as soon as Jesus said that, it clicked in Judas's mind what was going on. Judas was looking for an earthly kingdom. He thought, okay, this is the messianic age. This is the Messiah. He was working the deal. He had a position of being the treasurer. He thought that he would get a better position if Jesus would overthrow these Romans. But when Jesus rebuked Judas and exonerated the woman, it dawned on him, oh, this is a spiritual kingdom, not a physical kingdom that he's speaking about. It's then, I believe, that the workings of how can I get some money out of this which he did, he sold Jesus in secret for 30 pieces of silver, came over him. Now, it could be that Judas had a different motive. I don't know this. It's just a plausibility. I don't hang my hat on it, but it could be that Judas 
wanted Jesus to show him as the Messiah. And so he was going to back him into a corner to cause Jesus, to force Jesus to show his strength. You know, I'm going to betray him. And in the garden or wherever I betray him, you know, Jesus is going to you know, be Superman and, and break out of it. Maybe that's what he wanted. We don't know for sure. But Satan is behind the deal. And so he sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. Of course, though Satan is behind what Judas did, this is Satan's downfall. And in a sense, Satan contributes here to his own downfall. Okay, fine. Let Jesus be betrayed. What does that mean? It means he's going to die. Now maybe Satan thought, all right, I'll get rid of him. But read between the lines. Jesus predicted a resurrection. And it says in Colossians chapter 2, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made an open display of them, triumphing over them in the cross. So the cross was Satan's downfall. The betrayal was another addition to that plan. Then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. So they said to him, Where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. I like Peter and John. You always find them together. Peter, James, and John were sort of like the inner circle. They all hung out with Jesus, but they got to hang out with Jesus on really special occasions. But now it's just Peter and John. And uh, I don't know their conversation, but I can imagine it was probably colorful. There was a little competition going on. Remember when Jesus, uh, they found his tomb empty? And it says, Peter and John ran to the tomb, and John outran Peter. I think they were trying to race. John being a little younger, perhaps a little more physically fit. Uh, after all, Peter was a fisherman, maybe just sitting on a boat all day long, though he'd been walking around with Jesus, but John was just faster. Beat him. And then you remember after the resurrection, um, Jesus speaks to Peter and says, Peter, let me tell you what's going to happen to you. There's going to come a day when you're not going to be able to do whatever you want. Somebody else is going to take you where you don't want to go and they're going to kill you. And Peter looks at John and says, what about him? <laughs> Still that competition between them. So it could be that they're walking and Peter says, um, now... I'm Peter. Remember, I'm the rock, so let me do the talking here. And John could have said, yeah, but I'm much better at speaking than you are, Peter. You've always got your foot in your mouth and could have cited a few instances in the past where that happened. But nonetheless, here they are, walking together, finding this upper room. And there was a dead giveaway. For men do not carry water pitchers in ancient Judaism. Women do. Women it's a lot different now today than it was back then. You have come a long way, baby. <laughs> Women did all the work back then, and men did the most important things, which was discussing world news at the gates of the city, <laughs> while the women fed the animals and carried the water and carried the everything. And so the women would make their way down to the Pool of Siloam, which is still there in Jerusalem today, and it's quite a walk uphill back to the city. But, Jesus said, you'll see a man carrying water. You shall say to the master of the house, the teacher 
says to you, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Pesach? That's the Hebrew term, the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large furnished upper room there. Make ready. So they went and found it as he had said to them. And they prepared the Passover. What did they do in preparing the Passover? Well, there was a lot of preparation. If you've ever been to a Passover feast that we've had here, we're going to have another one coming up this spring. It's an elaborate preparation. The lamb had to be roasted. It was a full-on meal that lasted all night. It was a leisurely meal. And there was a definite seating arrangement. You've seen the pictures of Jesus at the Last Supper. It looks like they're all posing for a picture. You know, they're all, good. come on, you guys, scoot in here. Face the camera. That's what it looks like they're doing. And that's not an accurate depiction of what happened. It wasn't a Kodak moment, so to speak. In fact, it wasn't a long table with chairs at all. They ate on the Roman triclinium. It's a great way to eat. I know it sounds weird, but they would recline. They kind of kick back, lay on one elbow with a pillow under their elbow, just almost laying down while you're eating. It's a great way to eat. It's very relaxed. And uh, it's kickback. And uh, it was, um, in this case, it was done, if you could picture three tables with an open box at the middle and the center table that had the two wings attached to it, in the center would be the host. That would be Jesus. And there was a seating arrangement in ancient Judaism. The person at the right and the left of the table were the first and second guests of honor. Now, there's a little bit of debate as to which side people leaned on. I don't really think it matters. But it's interesting that the right and the left were the guests of honor. And then after that, uh, the second person on the right and the second person on the left were the second guests of honor, and they sort of went down in rank. Now, we don't know everybody's seating, but we do know that John lay his head on Jesus at the Last Supper, so he must have been sitting right next to Jesus. Of course, John describes himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. But Jesus spoke about the one who dips the sop with me will betray me which meant that Judas was also sitting next to Jesus. I can't think of a greater extension of love and grace and the willingness to draw him back even at the last moment of his betrayal. Judas, I want you to sit in this place of honor next to me. As if to say, Judas, you don't have to do this. I will give you yet another chance. Gracious and loving to the very end. So they prepared the Passover. And uh, there was a, um, an order of service called Haggadah, Haggadah, the order of service. Pesach Haggadah, the order of service for the Passover. And uh, there were four glasses of wine, there was the lamb, there were uh, herbs, there was the egg, the shank bone, different things. And uh, uh, it's too detailed at this point to Discuss it, I think. For our purposes, we'll go on. And when the hour had come, he sat down, the twelve apostles with him, and he said to them, With fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. 
Then he took the cup and he gave thanks and he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. Now, if you were to put all the gospels together, you might get a bit confused. It would seem like some gospel says there's one cup. Another gospel speaks of two cups. Actually, there were four cups. And it seems most appropriate that after the fourth glass, which was the cup of redemption, as that cup was taken up by the host, that's when Jesus drew the significance as he broke the matzah. And he said, take this. This is my body broken for you. And the fourth glass, the glass of redemption, had ultimate significance for those who were celebrating the Passover with him. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. This is the fourth cup. Uh, which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table, and truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Interesting elements to speak of his body being broken and his blood being spilled. Two frail elements, bread and wine. I say frail because both bread and wine are no good after a couple of days. Let them go on their own. One will get moldy. The wine will become really undrinkable, left for itself out in the air. These two frail elements. Now, Jesus said, this is my body broken. He said, now wait a minute. I read the scripture and it says that not a bone of his shall be broken. What does it mean, his broken body? Not his broken bones, but his broken body. He was so disfigured, Isaiah predicted. His visage, his countenance, that he became unrecognizable for who he was. I believe that if you would have looked at Jesus going up to the cross, you would have looked at him and you said, man, I don't even know who that is. Even if you were with him, he was disfigured, beaten to a pulp. His body was broken. Why? He became sin for us, though he knew no sin. And so his body was broken. Now he speaks about the bread and he says, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in verse 20, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Let's discuss the views of that just for a moment. And I'm not going to tell you which view to believe. Uh, I'll tell you what I believe. And you can believe what you feel compelled by the Spirit to believe. There's been three views of this Eucharist. Eucharist means giving of thanks, this communion ceremony. The view that was upheld from about the 5th, 6th, 7th, it became developed by the Roman Catholic Church, is known as transubstantiation, which teaches that the bread and the wine change into literally the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. So that when you partake at communion, you are partaking of the body and blood of Christ because these elements, the substance has changed. Now there's another view that was spawned by the Reformation. Martin Luther, Ulrich Zwingli, John Calvin, they modified it called consubstantiation, which said the elements remain unchanged, but Jesus Christ is present in spirit. 
within these elements. Then there's another view, which is more of an evangelical view. It's the view that I espouse, and that is these are holy memorials. The substance is unchanged, and basically this is simply an outward element to speak of what Jesus did on the cross. It's not that Jesus is in them in a special way or that you get grace conferred by these elements. It is simply a memorial, though a holy memorial unto the Lord. And we're to do this in memory of him. Those are basically the views. There are more, but let's move on. Behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. Truly, the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Interesting mix here. On one hand, Jesus said, it's determined in advance. Being God and knowing all things, knowing that this is going to happen, knowing the choices that Judas would make, he speaks of the plan of God. It's going to happen, period. But at the same time, the responsibility of Judas for his choice. They began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. I think that they were shocked again that it was Judas. They began to question among themselves. Now there's Judas. Is that not the peak of hypocrisy? He's about to betray Jesus Christ, but I feel it's my religious duty to attend this Passover with Jesus. Sitting at the table knowing what he's about to do. Doing his religious thing. Now that is hypocrisy. And there's lots of people like that around. They feel, you know, i got to go to church. It makes me feel good all week long. It makes me feel warm inside. I'm proud of myself. I pat myself on the back. But if all the while you're living in disobedience to God, man, it's a sham. Now what John said? If a man says, I know him, but he does not keep his commandments, he's a liar and he walks in darkness. The truth is not in him. Judas is a prime example of that kind of a person. But there was also rivalry among them. Can you imagine that? Jesus is about to suffer and die, and they're still arguing. <laughs> See, not much has changed. As to which of them would be considered the greatest? And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger. And he who governs is he who serves. Now, we scorn these guys, do we not? And we could go into a long diatribe about, can you imagine this? They weren't servants and we could discuss servanthood. But just, just wait a minute. I know we scorn these people. But simply, they were preoccupied with something they thought was really important. They thought Jesus is going to set up his kingdom. Man, I, I want a good seat. And I want to make sure that I get a reward. And so they're going to argue about who ought to be there. Now, years later, they would look back, of course, and even write epistles and say, and, and, you know, let's serve one another. Let's love one another. That, that wasn't important. But what things might be in your life right now that you are concerned about and preoccupied with that maybe in 10 or 20 years you'll look back on and say, that was such a waste of time. Why was I so hung up on something that really didn't matter or have real eternal value? We can get preoccupied as well. And Jesus uses that to give them a lesson. Don't be like Gentiles 
The church isn't a corporate world where you climb the ladder. The way up is the way down. And the way down is the way up. Of course, that's best illustrated in Jesus and the devil, right? Satan said, I will be like the Most High. God said, down you go, Isaiah 14. Jesus said, I will become humble and I will pour myself out, Philippians 2. And he was highly exalted, given a name above every name. The way up is the way down. The way down is the way up. It's reverse to that of the world. On the contrary, he was greatest among you. Let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as one who serves. The word serve is diakonon, which is the word deacon. It means to serve with lowly service. It's interesting, isn't it? A lot of times in churches it's like, I'm the deacon and we wear the big deacon badge. And uh, oftentimes, you know, it's a position of great power and prestige and esteem and put his name in the bulletin and put a plaque on the wall. He's the deacon. Listen, I've seen churches get into wars because of deacons. I think some churches can be deacon-possessed. And there's such strife and animosity because there's positions of power and this group over that group and this deacon over that deacon. The idea of deacon is to serve in a lowly capacity. He didn't care about his name and lights. or He just wants to serve people. Jesus said, I, I'm among you as one who serves. What does John 13 tell us about what happened during this time? Do you remember? When supper was ended, what did Jesus do? He got up, right, and he put... Uh, a cloak around him, the, uh, the garb of a servant. And uh, he did something very unusual. He started taking their sandals off and taking water and scrubbing their dirty, dusty, smelly fisherman feet. And P Peter was embarrassed. He said, Lord, don't. No, you're not going to do this. Fine, then you have no part with me at all. Oh, Lord, just, hey, give me a bath. Turn on the shower. Of course, he was a man of extremes. We know this about Peter. But what Jesus was doing by taking the garb of a servant and doing the duty of a servant was giving them an analogy in simplified form of what he had already done in greater form, right? Who being equal with God, Philippians 2, did not think it a thing to be grasped to be equal with God, but he emptied himself and became a servant, became found as a man, and humbled himself even to the death of the cross. So Jesus humbled himself to become a servant to die on the cross, and he showed that to his disciples at the Last Supper after the supper was ended. But at verse 28, you know, they're worried about their rewards, so Jesus is going to comfort them. But you are those who have continued with me in my trials. And I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. The twelve will have a special place in God's kingdom. There will be different positions, by the way. We're all the same at the foot of the cross. We're all saved by grace. We're not saved by works. But I think you know by now, the scripture teaches that our works as Christians determine our position 
in the kingdom. Not salvation. You're saved by an act of God's grace through the agency of your faith. But once you are saved, you're either a faithful servant or an unfaithful servant. And if you're a faithful servant and you do what God told you to do and use your gifts that God gave you, God will reward you in the kingdom differently than those who do not. The Bible teaches that in the book of Corinthians. As those rewards are given before the Bema Seat of Christ. But the twelve... These 12 will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. They'll have a special position, and it only makes sense. They form the transition between the Old and the New Covenants. And even Paul says that it's been built upon a foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So they have that position. And the Lord said, Simon... You know, he's speaking to them as a general whole. And then he kind of zeroes Simon out. And, uh, you know, Simon is kind of used to Jesus, at least at one point, complimenting him. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. And, of course, after that he said, get thee behind me, Satan. But this is another embarrassing moment for Peter. If you were to say, Peter, name your two most embarrassing moments It probably would have been, number one, when Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. Nobody's ever called me that before. And number two, when he said, Satan wants to eat your lunch, which is right here. Of course, there's another embarrassing moment that's about to happen in his life, and we probably will get to it next week. Very embarrassing. Simon, Simon. Now, whenever Jesus repeats himself, you best listen up. It is said for emphasis, Simon, Simon. Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he might sift you as wheat. Boy, that's insight into the spiritual realm, isn't it? Peter had no idea. And, and you know, I don't know that that's insight I necessarily would want to know. Satan has been asking for you, Peter. He's been coming around lately, and he wants to take you, just like you take a kernel of wheat and you squish it. And when it's squished, the chaff is left, and the chaff blows away with the wind. That's what Satan wants to do to you. He's been asking for you. I'm sure his eyes are wide. What'd you tell him? So anxiety has filled his heart. Verse 32, but I have prayed for you, and he probably went... that's good news. You've prayed for me. I'm going to be all right. That your faith should not fail. You know, I believe Peter's faith never failed once. I believe his obedience failed. His love, perhaps, in some degree failed. His commitment failed. But I I don't believe his faith ever failed. And when you have returned, strengthen your brother. Peter, Satan's been asking for you. I've prayed for you. And when you return, what what do you mean return? That's not a good thing. It means I'm going to go somewhere. To return, you have to leave. And so Peter said, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Now the Gospel of Mark records that when Jesus predicted the denial, it says, and Peter spoke more vehemently, saying, I will die with you, though all others forsake you. And so said all likewise. He was very vehement. You know, when Jesus predicted Peter's denial, I think that Peter was hurt. Lord, 
I can't believe you'd say that. I'm Peter. I'll die with you. No, Peter, well, look, go on. I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day before you will deny me three times that you know me. Now, when Peter said, I'm not going to deny you, I'll, go to, I'll die with you, I think he meant it. I don't think it was a put-on. I think he really believed that he, in his self-confidence, could handle the pressure. Don't worry about me. I'll hang in it. You can count on me. I'll never leave you or forsake you. Uh, no, that's my line, Peter, not your line. He was too self-confident. I think Peter was hurt, crushed. Jesus, how could you say that? You don't know me. You don't know me. If you really knew me, Jesus, if you knew my heart, you could never make that prediction. But see, that's the point. Jesus knew Peter so well, better than Peter knew himself, he could make this prediction. Peter doesn't realize it yet. But you know what? After his denial and his restoration, Peter will know that Jesus was right. After, they're on the shores of Galilee. And Jesus walks up to Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, Lord, you know that I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. You know I love you. Peter, do you love me? It says Peter was sorrowful because Jesus asked him three times. Same question. Of course, there was different words, as most of you know. Peter said, I agape you, Lord. I love you with a fervent, divine, intense love. When Jesus asked him, Peter, do you admire me? At the very end, the third question, he brought it down to Peter's level. He said, Peter, do you admire me? Do you, do you, do you phileo me? No, no, I got that wrong. The first question Jesus asked, Peter, do you love me? Do you agape me? But the third time, Jesus brought it down to that level of admiration love, and Peter said, Lord, listen to this, you know all things, and you know that I phileo you, that I admire you. Lord, my life is open. You know me better than I know myself. I said I'd love you to the point of death. Who am I kidding? You know me better than I know myself, and you know that right now it's simply a friendship, admiration, love. But Jesus didn't leave him there. He said, feed my sheep. He raised him up to that place of service. Now, did Peter ever get raised to that level of loving the Lord unconditionally with agape love? Well, read his letters. And in the original language in Greek, he uses the term agape so many times. Whom having not seen, we agape. He loved Jesus. But he realized that Jesus knew him better than he knew himself. And he makes this prediction. I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day before you deny me three times that you know me. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us, Whoever thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. Maybe you're reading this tonight thinking, yeah, poor Peter. Of course, I would never do that. You're on your way down, buddy. The first mark of Peter's downfall was self-confidence. I wish we had time, but next week we'll trace all of the steps, including that final step of Jesus Christ to restore him after Peter repents. But the first step was self-confidence. You can count on me. 
It's my fortitude. You know, if you stay up late at night, you have been cursed if you ever watch television. With all of these late night programs, how to unleash your power that is inside of you. How to maximize it through Dianetics and on and on and on. There's always a scam. Unleash your power. And we're trying to create a society of self-confident individuals. Well, there's nothing wrong with being able to say, I can do that job. But to stand before God and be self-confident is a curse. You're on your way down. Now, I think there's two extremes. One is to be overconfident. The other is to be absolutely unconfident. Oh, I'm nothing. I can't do anything. I'm just, forget it. I think that's ridiculous. I think there's a balance. Let's call it God confidence. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the balance that you want to get to. Without me, you can do nothing. Okay, I buy that. But I can do anything through Jesus Christ who gives me the strength. Of course, Peter isn't there yet. He will be one day. But you're going to see something in Peter's life. You're going to see a degeneration. Peter slowly denied Jesus. And that's what happens in the Christian life. That's what happens. Collapse in the Christian life is seldom a blowout. It is usually a slow leak. Like a tire that has some little imperfection and after a period of time it loses air. And of course it loses air when you're way far away. And you park it for a long time and you go out to your car and not only are the lights on perhaps, but you got a flat tire. Slow leak, not a blowout. And you're going to see Peter leak slowly in this chapter. What about you? You say, well, I'd never fall away. Are you cold to the things of the Spirit? Do the things of the Spirit of God, the Bible, prayer, fellowship, do they excite you like they once did? Or do you find your heart growing colder? Peter, you will see next week, warms himself by the fires of the enemy. Where are you warming yourself? Where do you find the greatest comfort? With what crowd do you feel at home? If you say, well, I feel more at home, not with Christians, but uh, unbelievers. It's a dangerous position for you to be in. Dangerous. I'm not saying that you should join a monastery and forget the world. But even when I'm around unbelievers, though I see it as an opportunity, there's a bit of discomfort. Because we represent two entirely different kingdoms. We're going two different places. And my heart aches. The discomfort I feel is I want to see them on the same track, enjoying the same Lord, the same benefits. Test yourself tonight. Examine yourself. Where do you stand? What's your heart like? Are you confident? Overconfident? Take heed. Heavenly Father, we come tonight so grateful for the examples found in the Holy Writ of men and women, some enemies, some friends, those who failed, those who excelled, all of them written for our benefit, examples for us to follow. 
or examples for us to stay away from. Lord, I pray that if we have found ourselves growing cold to the things of the Spirit, perhaps by a bit of overconfidence, I pray, Lord, that you'd bring us to that place, knowing that we can do all things, but only through Christ who gives us the strength. And I pray that we would be faithful to use the gifts that you've given us for your glory, for it's to that end that we live. Lord, I would pray tonight for anybody who has come to this service tonight with a hungry heart that has not been yet filled. They sense the need. They've experienced the distance with you, and now they want to close that gap. They're ready to turn their lives over to Jesus Christ tonight. Oh, Lord, we're so excited for that. We pray, Lord, that right now you'd give each the strength to respond to your call. And as you right now are in a prayerful mood considering your own life, perhaps you would admit, you, you know, I, I come here or I have come here or tonight's my first time, but I have never surrendered my life to Jesus Christ for him to absolutely control it, that I might live and serve him. Maybe you could admit that tonight. You could admit that tonight. You could admit that tonight. 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 